Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. Hello and welcome to another episode of This Week in Clean Tech, a roundup of the week's biggest stories you need to know in climate and clean energy in 15 minutes or less. Today is Friday, February 9th, 2024, and I'm certain of it because last week we again went into the past, um, which we tend to do from time to time with this this crazy world we live in. I'm Renewable Energy World Editor-in-Chief John Ingle. We'll have Elizabeth Weiss from USA Today joining us shortly, a really interesting piece on NIMBYism, local opposition, and how that's impacting the energy transition. But for now, I'm joined by climate tech PR veteran, Mike Casey of TigerCom. Hey, Mike. John, how are you, my friend? I'm good. We are in the final stretch before Distributech International at the the end of the month in Orlando. So I think I'm I'm pulling my hair out. And that's probably a big factor into why I got the date wrong last week in introducing the show. So um, all, all good things. But you know, this is this is the busy season for me. How about you? Well, I'm happy to announce to our listeners that you you have generously committed to buying for the first ten round of drinks for our the hundred uh, viewers who show up at the live taping at Distributech. I think that's incredibly generous, John. Hmm. And uh, I don't drink, so you don't have to worry about me racking up your bar tab. But I think it's just great that you did that. Yeah, well, I do. Um, but uh, the fortunate for me is that there are free drinks everywhere at a conference. So yet you can say that I'm buying people drinks at our uh, 1145 a.m. taping on that Tuesday, um, <laughs> February. I think that's 27th. So join us there at Distributech and let us know if you're going to go and we'll try to to hang out there at the event. But Mike, really looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Be fun. It'll be fun. All right. So we want to thank our listeners who have been sending in those story recommendations and nominations for Clean Tecker of the Week. We'll get to that later on in the episode, but you can send those to rew at clarionevents.com. And as always, we'll have a link in the episode description as well. Okay, Mike, get us started. Ivan Penn of the New York Times reports summer has long stressed electric grids and now winter does too. John, what do you think? Yeah, this is a big one. The North American Electric Reliability Corporation reports that winter electricity demand might outpace summer demand by 2015 or 2050, excuse me, a big changing dynamic there. And that shift um, caused in part because of heat generated by oil and gas is, is moving to electric heaters, straining utilities in the grid, especially because they're less efficient below 30 degrees Fahrenheit, increasing the load during extreme cold. Having high demand in multiple seasons might make it harder to repair and improve aging systems as well. You have these scheduled outages that become problematic when you're strained already. And I know regional grid operators are are grappling with this all over the country. It's not exclusive to to one area. So um, that's a major issue. Mike, what do you think? Well, to the disappointment of LinkedIn's tribe of climate denier holdouts, uh, this is yet another cost of the polluting legacy of fossil fuels. It's great that people are switching to cleaner electric heating. But that switch does present challenges. We're not just changing when and how energy is produced. We're also changing when it's needed. And some argue that this is uh, 
a sign that we need gas in the mix to produce electricity during peak times. But gas does have a Texas-sized track record problem when it comes to delivering an extreme cold, particularly in the Sun Belt. And if we keep scaling clean energy and build battery storage, we can cut our dependence on frack gas and have greater reliability in our electric supply. Yeah, so we're on to uh, story number two. We've got a story written by Christian Robles from e News titled Gold Hydrogen, the Next Clean Fuel. Okay, this one might get me riled up a little bit. So, Mike, I'll, I'll let you start us off. That's good, John. I know you are a resonant skeptic on all things new, cool, and experimental, so it's good I'm going first. Um, I'm here to brighten things up a little bit with this piece, which describes a new way to produce hydrogen. It's called gold hydrogen by drilling for it underground, similar to how we drill for gas and oil. So according to Jeffrey Ellis, a research geologist at the U.S. Geological Survey, there's about 5 million megatons of gold hydrogen across the globe. If just 2% were extracted, we could produce the amount of hydrogen needed to maintain net zero pollution for 200 years. So the bummer is right now, this is the early days, and um, there's one village in Mali that has um, the only well on the planet that can drill for this hydrogen. And that provides enough electricity for that village. So the tricky part is finding these deposits. And it seems right now the technology isn't much better at finding this stuff than the exactness of throwing darts with a blindfold on. John, what do you think? I am supportive of trying new things that are going to help this transition and the planet. My only caveat to that will be focus is the biggest challenge facing hydrogen, in my opinion. Hydrogen can do so many things. It's so versatile. It's this silver bullet. But, that, but then we get distracted by the, the multitude of options that we have to, to apply hydrogen. And I, I think that's been um, one of the biggest drags on its, it, on its advancement is we, we can't decide what we want to use it for, what it's best used for, what's most economical, and what um, the role should be in the mix. So that's, that's my only thing. Keep trying hard things. We need to research these technologies, but we, we got to get back to actually deploying and scaling um, some of these things as well. Mike, story number three. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. The Verge, the Verge's Justine Calma reports, how bad is Tesla's hazardous waste problem in California? John, what do you think? Yeah, 25 counties have sued Tesla this week for allegedly disposing hazardous waste in places where it's not authorized. The suit also claims Tesla failed to determine if the waste was hazardous in the first place and, quote, failed to properly mark, label and store the materials and did not properly train their employees on how to handle the materials. And this didn't just happen at one place. This happened across 101 California facilities. Mike, your takeaway. I know you have feelings about Elon, but what, <laughs> what about this specific story? Yeah, I think this problem seems almost as messy as Elon Musk's um, board relations practices. You can't just dump brake fluid, antifreeze, aerosols, and other toxic flammable waste where it's convenient for you. We've got disposal standards. They've been around for 50 years, and there's a reason because there's really no away and throw away. What we dump out uh, haphazardly is going to end up in our bodies sooner or later. So if these allegations prove true, it's a it's a really bad look for Tesla, and I think they're going to pay dearly for it. John, what's our fourth story? Yeah, this is from Craig Trudell at Bloomberg titled EV Slowdowns Turns the Table for Leaders and Laggards. Mike, what'd you take away? All right. So um, Tesla hit a speed bump warning last week of slower growth uh, sales, uh, slower sales growth resulting in a 12% stock drop and 80 
billion dollar loss. Uh, stock in BYD, the Chinese automaker that briefly overtook Tesla in EV sales, also declined after reporting underwhelming results as they face a price war in China's car market. But here's my here's my challenge with headlines like this. It's the lack of context. So let me read you some numbers from EV Volumes website. North America, including the US and Canada, saw EV sales increase by 48% year on year in 2022. The EV share of light vehicle sales is forecast to reach 19%, 19.5% in 2025. That goes to 45% in 2030 and 77% in 2035. I just got to say, there are a lot of industries that would do a lot of things to get a growth rate of 19.5%, never mind 45 or 77. So I think some context here puts the bigger picture in sharp review. John, what do you think? Yeah, Mike, I'm, maturing industries begin to grow more slowly at some point. It cannot just be exponential forever. I think that's a, a big point here and something that, um, you know, EV proponents have been trying to put out there in, de in defense of all these headlines saying bad news for Biden or bad news for the EV transition. Some manufacturers like GM and Volvo are actually getting credit for delaying plans to continue EV production. GM saw an 8% surge in their stock. Uh, Volvo stopped funding their electric sports car. And the support from China's Geely uh, resulted in a 26% increase in Volvo's car stock, largely the result of increased competition, which is not the worst news for the sector, although we are seeing an EV investment slowdown. Um, demand is still strong. So something to watch, but I think still positive news. All right, Mike, our last story and our guest this week. Yeah, Elizabeth Weiss from USA Today has a package that starts with this story. Across America, clean energy plants are being banned faster than they're being built. And John, I guess this is a topic near and dear to my heart, but I think the really big thing for uh, clean energy developers is check out this uh, key finding. They are already banned in building in 15% of U.S. counties. And that's one of the, the numbers that really jumped out at me at Elizabeth's uh, story. But let's welcome her on the show to talk about this this really uh, impressive year-and-a-half-long investigation. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Happy to be here. Good. All right. Well, so peop for people who haven't read the, the story or the package yet, what's the big takeaway? As you said, in 15% of U.S. counties, 3,144 U.S. counties, in 15% of them, uh, new utility-scale wind or solar projects are blocked is a really good word to use because we included outright bans, moratoria. Uh, we called, we had a category that was significant impediments. I mean, if you say, yeah, you can build wind turbines, go for it, but they can't be more than 200 feet tall. Nobody's going to build in that county. So 15% of counties, uh, that's a lot. They tend to be in places where there's good wind or there's good sun because nobody's bothering to ban solar utilities in Alaska. Um, and the other thing that we found, which in some ways is, is of more concern if you are concerned about reaching U.S. energy goals, is that the rate of these blocks and bans is increasing. I mean, that, I think that was the most interesting thing. When we finally got it all in a spreadsheet and we had a year for every one of these laws or um, zoning rules that came into effect, we could see that they are ramping up seriously. Less so for wind, uh, partly because I think there's, there's already a lot of wind built, um, though we need more. But for solar, 
the the number of bans and significant impediments went up. I mean, starting in 2020, I mean, it was almost doubling every year. And last year, if you go into the story, you just see it just spikes. Elizabeth, were you able to to come to a conclusion on how effective these uh, local ordinances or actions or or you know whatever it is that is keeping the projects out is in actually killing or um, preventing development in those locations? Because I I know that sometimes developers will frame it to us as the strategy is delay long enough that we eventually have to leave because we just can't make the economics pencil anymore, even if there is an adjudication process that rises to the state level. I'm, I'm curious if you have any insight as to, you know, how much power these localities actually wield in the end. They have a ton of power. Um, I mean, we looked, so it, altogether it was 471 counties that had either a ban on wind or solar or sometimes both. And I mean, I looked at everyone and I do have to say, we started with the fantastic work that was done by, Anthony Lopez and the folks at the National Renewable Energy Lab, and then Matt Eisenson, who's at uh, Columbia's Sabin Center. Um, but then we built on it because th- those databases don't go through 2023. And the thing that we did that was different is we assigned values. So we said, okay, you've got these laws in place. Do they in fact stop people from building anything new? And they do. Uh, sometimes, again, it's these, you know, it's a, I mean, there are, there are a fair number of counties that have two, three, there's one county that has a five mile setback requirement for wind. You can't, you can't build, I mean, you pretty much can't build anywhere in this country with a five mile setback for wind. Uh, we saw a ton of counties in Virginia where there's been a fair amount of solar who have blocked solar by saying, <clears throat> can't build, build on agricultural land. Um, we saw a, there are sound limits, there are um, height limits, and there were actually a relatively few number of cases where we assigned a, a, a blockage to a county simply because they kept turning down projects. Um, and that, that was pretty rare. I, I actually think there's probably more, but we were trying to be very conservative in which counties we said were blocks. I mean, the one that comes to mind right now is is Shasta County in California, which I mean the they've got a they've got projects on that they're working on there. The state has said you can't block these projects; you have to let them through. And the county of Shasta has actually come out and said, not only do we not want these, but we are going to assign as a hundred thousand dollars to a media blitz campaign in our county, telling people that we want to block this and we are being uh, stymied in that effort by the federal or by the state government. So we consider that to be a difficult to build County. Elizabeth, you did, I think um, 18 months of reporting on this. You went to States, you were in these rooms, stepping back from this really impressive amount of reporting. What would you say is driving this phenomenon? Yeah. If your readers know, tell them to call me. I'd love to hear. There, there are a couple of things happening. Uh, there, There's very clearly efforts at the national level. Uh, I don't, we can't connect all the dots, but certainly coming, there are, there are uh, uh, think tanks and things like them, which kind of are constantly churn out, churning out ideas for why we don't need wind and solar. So there's that. Uh, there are 
people on the ground in in these areas who who don't want it, who may or may not be connected. I mean, what what we found, and I mean, I've now attended a fair number of these county commission meetings, is if you are, and I'm sure developers tell you this all the time, if you're a developer, you come to a county, you want to build wind or solar, and as soon as word gets out, somebody creates a Facebook group. There's suddenly a uh, you know Citizens for Responsible Solar X County that pops up, and they've everybody's got the same T-shirts. And there's I mean there's there's a lot of um, synchronicity going on. But the other thing, and the and the piece of it that is more intractable is there are a lot of people who. I think that they they will any argument that they can find that will say this is why we shouldn't build it here, they will grab onto. But truth be told, these are folks who live someplace who love where they are and they don't want it to change. I mean, and 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 I we we very purposefully didn't use the word NIMBY anywhere in the story because I think that's an easy way to dismiss the concerns of folks who live. I mean, we're in the midst of an energy transition, and part of that transition is shifting where we produce energy. And we are suddenly starting to produce energy in a whole lot of places where we haven't before, and people are exposed to it in ways they haven't before, and they have to see it, and they don't want to, and they... And it's maybe a little bit of the great resorting, I think. I mean, we're seeing, you know, more conservative Americans moving to uh, exurbs and further out of town, uh, semi-rural areas. And that tends to be where we're putting wind and solar because it's where there's a lot of land. Um, And not only do those, so they've come there searching for this rural agrarian lifestyle. They themselves are not farmers and they often work in town or they have jobs that allow them more flexibility, but that's where they want to live. And you move in and suddenly that's changing and there's a windmill and then there's kind of an overlay of, of conservative concerns about whether or not we actually need wind and solar. I, I, it is interesting to me that in a lot of these rural counties, you get, I mean, there's warehouses, you know, Amazon distribution centers being built all over the country. And yeah, they take up a lot of space and they are not, it's not a rural look. It's not a cornfield. Um, The backlash against them while it's there is not as strong. So there's, there's a lot going on under the surface. And that's actually what I hope to be researching in the next year. And if your listeners who are, uh, you know, renewable companies want to want to talk on or off the record about what they're seeing, I would certainly love to talk to them because, yeah, I spent a year and a half on this one and I expect this is what I'll spend the next year on. Well, John, we're just about out of time. We need to go to our clean techer of the week. Yeah, it's Tom Matzi, CEO of Clean Choice Energy, which has just been recognized by Real Leaders as one of the top, uh, 2024 top impact companies in the world for their work in expanding access to clean energy. So congratulations to Tom. And oh. we want to thank uh, Beth Weiss for joining us this week on This Week in Clean Tech. So please subscribe, give us feedback, and share your story recommendations. And you can also read all of those Um, articles we discussed this week by clicking the links in the episode description. No factor this episode Monday. We're taking a couple of weeks off, but we have Intersect Power CEO Sheldon Kimber coming up next week. So watch out for that. All right, Mike. 
Well, we want to thank Brian Mendez, our wonderful producer, Claire Quirin, and Alex Peterson for helping us gather these stories. And again, Elizabeth Weiss for coming on and joining us. John, looking forward to seeing you in Florida in a couple of weeks, my friend. Yeah, see you soon. Thanks, Elizabeth. You're welcome. Bye. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.